0: Revelation chapter 2. We continue in our study, and today we come to the letter addressed to the fourth church, the fourth of seven churches addressed here in chapters 2 and 3. As I mentioned last Sunday, there, there are two ways in which these two chapters, the letters to the seven churches, are organized. The first is geographical. That is, if, if you left John on the island of Patmos and went to the nearest city, it would be Ephesus. And then you work work your way up along the coast to Smyrna, go inland a bit to Pergamum, then over to Thyatira, and then you would catch the last three cities, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea on the way down. And so it's sort of a semicircle in what we now know as Turkey. The second way to organize this material is in terms of themes. Uh, There are two groups of threes, and the one we will look at today is the one in the middle. It is the longest section uh, to the church at Thyatira. In the first group, we have uh, the call at the end of each letter, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and then there is the promise. In the second one, it is the promise, and then we have uh, the call to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In each group, the middle church, Smyrna and Philadelphia, are churches about which Christ has something or has nothing negative to say. Uh, They are doing what they should be doing. Today we come to the middle letter, the fourth letter to the Church of Thyatira. It is uh, the longest of the seven. uh, It is addressed to this church in Thyatira. Uh, As one writer has put it, it is the longest and most difficult of the seven letters uh, addressed. and It is the least known, least important, least remarkable of the cities. We know very little about Thyatira. It's probably the smallest and least important of the seven cities. It was located at the mouth of a valley, uh, which connected two other valleys, the Hermas River, which went to Smyrna, and then the Caicus River, which went to Pergamum. It was sort of right there in the middle. It was a strategic location. Um, In the ancient world, two of the major roads of the ancient world passed through Thyatira. It is in 290 BC that it emerges uh, in history. It became a military center. But to sort of give you some idea about Thyatira, its importance was, not that it was important, but that it was a city to defend the capital Pergamum. And that is before you got to Pergamum, you had to go to Thyatira. And therefore it was seen as an expendable city It was a place where people would go and, uh, you know, they they would try to get to the capital, but first they have to get through this small city. And so they would fight and fight and burn it to the ground, capture it, you know, destroy everything, and then march on to Pergamon. By that time, Pergamon would be ready to resist whatever invasion might be coming their way. But in that sense, Thyatira is sort of a second-class city. It's like they're expendable, yeah, you can rebuild them. It's the capital that we're really concerned about. It was known for its industry, and I think this was its one uh, claim to fame. Politically, it was not important. Uh, Religiously, it was not uh, extraordinarily important. What it was known for were the industries, particularly dyeing, um, purple cloth, came out of Thyatira, metal works, Leatherworks and pottery. I mean, these things all came out of Thyatira. By the way, if you keep notes, if you keep track in your mind, the first convert that we know of in Europe is a woman named Lydia. Remember, Paul goes over to Philippi. Her name is Lydia. She sold purple cloth from Thyatira. If you look in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 14, We're not sure if she was from Thyatira, but certainly the product that she sold, Purple Cloth, came from this particular city. As best we can tell, every industry had its own patron god, if you wish. Uh, Every industry had its own guild or union. So that if you, let's say, dyed wool, purple, you had to belong to the guild that did dyeing. And that guild had its own god. And therefore, to be a part of that industry, you had not only to be had to be part of the union, if you wish, but you also had to participate in the worship of that god. And what would happen at guild functions, they would go and worship these gods, they would sacrifice food to idols, and then they would, in turn, eat that food. So you would end up eating food uh, sacrificed to gods. And then after the religious feast, then came the religious worship, which involves sexual immorality. Uh, that's how they worship their gods. So if you're a Christian in Thyatira and you work with metal or with pottery or with leather or with cloth, if you did any type of dyeing, um, you were really in a hard place because if you wanted to continue in that world, you had to be a part of the guild, a part of the union, and to participate in the various activities. If you quit, you would lose your position, your standing in society, and your family would suffer. On the other hand, if you stayed in the guild and you participated, then in essence you were denying the Lord. So let me see. Let my family go hungry or deny the Lord. And this is the tension that the believers in Thyatira faced. Let's read this section, and then we will go through it uh, verse by verse. Beginning in verse number 18, here in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Who is speaking here? Well, we know it is the Lord Jesus Christ, but how does he identify himself? And we've seen at the beginning of each letter. He identifies himself in a different way. Well, first of all, he identifies himself as the Son of God. Keep track in your thinking or in your notes. This is the only place in the book of Revelation where we find this expression, the Son of God. It's the only place where we find it in the entire book. Okay, So that means it is of some significance. Its significance, I think we will see when we get to the end of this letter, It is in connection with Psalm 2, when it talks about um, God setting up his son as the ruler. He is described as having eyes like blazing fire, feet like burnished bronze. I think people who worked with bronze and Thyatira would understand what this means. Both of these descriptions are given in chapter 1, by the way, when John has his first vision of Christ in the midst of the golden lampstands. But why are these two mentioned here? I would suggest several reasons. First of all, the eyes that are like burning fire refer to the fact that he sees everything. Not simply uh, seeing things, but to the heart of the matter. He knows what's going on in this insignificant, expendable town. And we're not sure, but it seems like the church probably was not all that significant. He knows what is going on. What about his feet like bronze? Well, they speak of his coming in judgment in which he will tread down that which is evil. Judgment will come unless they repent. Verse 19, we have first the positive. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And as we've seen, these are actually two different ways of saying the same thing. That is, love is seen in service and faith is seen in perseverance. These people love one another, they serve one another, and they are people of faith. They have continued in the Christian faith. And Jesus says to them, you are doing more than you did at first. That is, there is progress in the life of this church. Unlike the church in Ephesus, which had forgotten its first love, and Jesus tells them, you need to do the things you used to do at the beginning. The church at Thyatira is in fact making progress. But now we come to the negative, and this is what the bulk of the letter deals with. As one author has written, Jesus says to the church at Thyatira, I love your love, but I hate your tolerance. They face something that we face today, and we've talked about it, but let's do so at this point again. Biblical Christianity is, I think, by definition, intolerant. Well, in our society and in that society, that's heresy. I mean, in our society, tolerance is seen as the highest virtue. To say, I am intolerant, that makes you what? A Nazi? A fascist? I mean, some type of, I mean, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you tolerant? But let's take a deep breath and calm down a minute and think a minute. When you say you are tolerant... You've not finished the sentence. You've not finished the statement. Tolerant of what? Because I think I could mention some things here that none of us are tolerant of. If someone abuses children, are we tolerant of that? Absolutely not. If we see someone attacking another person, are we tolerant of that? No. So when people say, I am tolerant, we need to say, well, that's nice, but what are you tolerant of? And when we say that biblical Christianity is intolerant, that's only part of the statement, what is it intolerant of? And here we see in this particular case, it is of false teaching and of practices that are wrong. And so Jesus says to them, I have this against you, you tolerate that is, you are tolerant of that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. The problem in Thyatira is that they were tolerant of something they should not have been tolerant of. It is a particular woman who is a prophetess. I don't think her name is Jezebel. Jezebel. I can't imagine anyone in the first century, at least in the Jewish community, naming their daughter Jezebel. Certainly within the biblical context of the Old Testament, Jezebel was not a nice person. And so I think this is more of a title. This is symbolic of who she is. Um, do you know the story of Jezebel in the Old Testament, found in First and Second Kings? Um, she was actually not Jewish. She was from modern Lebanon today, the Tyre of Sidon. Her father's name was F. Baal. She was a worshiper of Baal. Uh, She married Ahab, the king of Israel, and she brought her religion with her. She set up her own religion uh, and did so in a very aggressive way. Uh, Do you know the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel when he met with the prophets of Baal? This is what Elijah says to Ahab. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. In other words, Jezebel feeds these guys. She pays their salary. She is the patron of this religion in Israel. And the incident that led to her death, Ahab is already dead. Her son, Joram, who has now become king sees that Jehu is coming toward the city, and so he goes out to meet him. And when he meets him, he says, Have you come in peace? Jehu answers him, How can there be peace as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? She was known as someone who practiced false religion and encouraged other people to do so. How does that fit in with the story, the situation at Thyatira? I mentioned earlier, if you were in a particular trade, you had to belong to the guild. And if you belong to the guild, you practice certain religious things. Jezebel, we are told, is seducing God's people and leading them to sexual immorality and to eat food that is sacrificed to idols. I would argue that she's not, she didn't come in the church and say, this is what we need to do. This is what they were being tempted to do and she told them it's okay it's okay to do that if you go to verse number 24 we read about Satan's so called deep secrets and we're doing some reconstructing here they certainly understood what John was talking about but I think this is the situation people come to church and if you wish if they did anything like we do either before the service in the service or afterwards they begin to talk and they begin to say brothers i have this problem uh, you know me i work with metal and i belong to such and such a guild and and they're telling me that i have to go to the big business meeting the big feast that we have and and i have to participate and if i don't go i'm going to lose my union card i'm going i'm not going to be part of the guild anymore and no one's going to buy from me anymore But I know if I go to this feast that I'm going to have to eat food that's sacrificed to idols and there will be a real push for me to be involved in sexual immorality. What should I do? Well, this woman comes into the church and says, It's okay. It's okay. Go to the guild meeting. Participate in the pagan worship. Eat food that's sacrificed to idols. Be involved in sexual immorality. It's no big deal. This is who Jezebel was in this small church in Thyatira. She told them, it didn't matter what you do with your body. You could be a good Christian and still participate in pagan worship. From what we know of the early church, and we certainly have seen it here in our study of 1 Corinthians, there arose a belief among some that what you did with your body What you did physically with your body wasn't really important. It didn't count, if you wish. What counted was your spirit. And as we went through 1 Corinthians, we saw that one of the big things was they defined being spiritual as someone who was not concerned about the body, but just was very, very spiritual. It's about their spirit, lowercase s, if you wish. And Paul said, no, being spiritual is having the Holy Spirit, capital S. This has come into the church, it's been with us, I think, Pretty much up to the present day. So that people say, well, you know, Jesus came. He came to die for you. He wants to save your soul. Okay, well, what about the rest of me? Well, we saw from First Corinthians 15, He came for our bodies as well, because one day we will be resurrected. But in the early church, there came this teaching... Listen, you can do what you want with your body. It doesn't matter. It's, it's going to go to the dust anyway. What's what the, inter, the eternal part of you, it's your spirit. And Jezebel seduces God's people and says to them, don't worry about it. If you want to stay in business, I know what it's like to be in business. You're going to have to play by their rules. You're going to have to play their game. And so when the guild of wool dyers get together... And they're going to worship this God. You're going to have to eat the meat that's offered to their idol. And you're going to have to involve, get involved in sexual morality. But don't worry about it. You need to feed your family. And after all, what you do with your body is not important. It is important. She was wrong. And Jesus says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality. But she is unwilling. The woman who was teaching these things in the church, you know, one would think from Acts five, Ananias and Sapphira, somebody comes into the false into the church and they teach false things, God strikes them dead. No. She teaches falsely, and God in patience waits for her. He gives her a chance to repent of her false teaching. But it is oftentimes the case God's patience leads to complacency. And rather than repenting, I think she probably took it as God's on our side. God's blessing us. Look at Brother So-and-So. He was about to go out of business, but I told him, keep going to the pagan festivals. Keep getting involved in pagan work. And look at his business now. His business has improved. Now he's able to tithe more because he's making more. She took God's patience as a sign of God's approval rather than the fact that it was God was saying, you need to repent of what you're doing and of what you're teaching. And since she has not repented, Jesus now comes with judgment. He says, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. seems to indicate that God would begin the judgment with her, and then those who were listening to her, if they did not repent, the judgment would come to them as well. There's a certain irony here that the judgment that is spoken of is a bed of suffering. As one commentator noted, with grim humor, Jesus is saying, do you want to get into bed? That is, do you want to commit fornication? Very well, here's a deathbed for you. Those who use sexuality in a wrong way, okay, you want the bed? Here, you get it. It is a bed of suffering. Her and the people who listen to her would be judged unless they repented. I will strike her children dead. I think as we go through Revelation, we'll see a little more clearly. This doesn't refer to her physical children. Uh, It doesn't even refer to her converts as much as the people who follow her teaching. Then all the churches will know, Jesus says, that I am he who searches the hearts and minds of And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Yes, he whose eyes are like blazing fire knows. Even that small city of Thyatira, he knows what is going on there and he will judge. But we should see something in verses 24 and 25, that not everyone in the church had embraced her teaching. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. The language here, to me at least, is fascinating because it is almost identical to what the church council in Jerusalem said. In in, uh, Acts chapter 15, all the elders got together, the apostles, and the question was, When a Gentile becomes a Christian, should he become a Jew as well? Circumcision, keeping the Sabbath, keeping kosher. Should he or she have to do that? And after the council was finished, they came to the conclusion, No, they don't, but let's send out a letter to the Gentile believers. And this is what they wrote, in part. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. In other words, we don't want to put an additional burden on you. You are to abstain from food offered to idols or sacrificed to idols, from blood, from meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. And Jesus says, okay, those of you who did not follow Jezebel, this false prophetess, I'm not going to add anything. What the council said, stay away from sexual immorality, stay away from food that is sacrificed to idols. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Continue in the faith until Jesus comes with judgment. And Then we have the promise in verses 26 through 28. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. I think we need to be reminded of something because this, is, this has a potential of, of great danger here. The quote, by the way, is from Psalm 2, and I will read to you that in a minute. But remember that the expression, to him who overcomes, is very much John's expression. Um, victory is very dominant in his writings. In Paul's writings, it is faith. In John's writings, it is overcoming. We find it 17 times in his writings that he talks about overcoming. Um, in his epistle, 1 John 5, 4, for every one of, born of God overcomes the world. And as I've said to you these past three Sundays, it is not a question of victory versus defeat, that is, overcoming versus losing and nobody wants to be a loser, okay? No, it is a question of standing with Christ or being a traitor, being guilty of treason. Now the people in church in Thyatira are told, if you stand firm, if you believe, you overcome. You stand with Christ. If not, you're like Jezebel and those who follow her, they're traitors. They're guilty of treason. They've gone over to the other side. And that's why Christ would judge them for what they have done. But what is this in verse number 26? He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Let me read to you. This is from Psalm number two. If you want to follow along, you can. Psalm, Psalm number uh, two, verse one. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So that's why he's called the Son of God here. It goes back to Psalm number two. And the one who is the Son of God is given the promise, I will make the nations your inheritance. You will rule them with an iron scepter you will dash them to pieces like pottery. By the way, the potters in Thyatira, they understood that analogy very well. Okay, so does that mean that Jesus is saying, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to rule. You're going to reign. You're going to be in charge. You're going to be number one. No, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, if you stand with Christ, Christ is the one who has victory. He is the one who will rule with an iron scepter. He is the one who has total authority. There's one more part to this, if you look at it in verse number 28. I will also give him the morning star. What exactly is the morning star? Well, in the numbers account of Balaam, which we looked at last week, he was hired to curse Israel, and instead he blesses Israel. And in the midst of his blessing them, he makes this amazing prophecy. I think he's speaking of the Messiah. I see him, but not now. I will behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Star and scepter. Well, we've just read about the scepter. In verse number 27, now we read about the star. The two things come together as they speak of the Messiah. But in this case, I think we are most fortunate because we have even clearer indication of what this is. Keep your fingers here, if you would, and look at the very last chapter here in the book of Revelation Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, verse number 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. So when Jesus says, I will give you the morning star, he's giving himself. Those who put their faith in Christ, those who overcome, stand with Christ, and they are given the gift of Christ. They are given the gift of his life, eternal life. So the one who overcomes, the one who has faith, what is the outcome of believing in Christ? You have Christ. You have his salvation. And I think we need to understand who Christ is. He is the one who will rule the nations. So it isn't, Oh, if I become a Christian, I will get to rule. No, Christ rules. If you become a Christian, you stand with Christ. He gives you himself, the bright morning star. And then we hear the call in verse number 29, back in chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I think we need to listen, we need to hear. I think we need to understand that the problem that the church in Thyatira faced is not unique as a whole. You know, Maybe the details were. Um, but the problem was not unique. And it's not simply something that we should study for academic interest. Hmm, that's interesting. Church in Thyatira faced this problem. It is not a problem that does not concern us. Every generation of God's people, every generation has had to face this question. What should I do and what should I not do as a member of society? I think from Adam on to the end of time, every generation of God's people have to deal with this question. We are not called to say, well, I'm not part of society. Let's remove ourselves. We're not part of society. No, we are. We are a part of this society. As we saw with Pergamum, this is where you live. This is where the throne of Satan is. And you're not supposed to leave. This is where you're supposed to live. It'd be easier if we could bail and, and go live in a commune somewhere and not have to deal with But no, that's not the call of Christ for his people. So we're not to deny that we're part of society. Neither are we to deny that we belong to Christ. And in every life, perhaps every day, I don't know what goes on in your lives. We are called to make decisions, and the question is, will we do what is right, or will we make a compromise? I think for the most part, Christians in our culture are not called on to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. I don't think we're called on to commit sexual immorality. Certainly the temptation is there, but I don't think uh, as, as a part of getting along in the business world. But I think we are called on to do things that are not right. And perhaps we haven't been as discerning as we should have been, and and perhaps we have been doing things that we shouldn't be doing. Perhaps in some very strange way we've been listening to Jezebel, and we've not repented because things have been going along very well because either we stand with Christ or we stand with the others and the spirit says you need to listen and we need to think through in our individual lives because each of us face different choices and different temptations will I do what is right and there could be a big price to pay for that or will I do what is wrong and in the process deny Christ I think this is something that each of us needs to think through. The church in Thyatira is not unique. Only the details are different. We will always face the choice. Deny Christ, or deny something that may end up costing us our livelihoods. Let's pray together. Father, it is always easier to see the fault in someone else. It's always easier to see what is the right choice for someone else and to look at the church and Thyatira and to know how wrong some of them were to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, to be involved in sexual immorality. But perhaps we in our lives, our individual lives, perhaps as a congregation we have failed to see the things that we are doing wrong the compromises that we have made and we've justified it by saying well that's just the way things are it's just the way things have to be done we want to stand with the Lord Jesus Christ we want to stand with your people in doing what is right I pray that in each heart, in each life, we will in the week to come, the days to come, think this through. I think of the decisions that we make day after day. And ask ourselves, are we denying Christ? Are we doing what is not right in order to survive? We need your spirit to open our eyes. May we hear what he says to the churches. What he is saying to us. Today, today we remember the death of your son and his sacrifice. We're also reminded of Peter's denial and how easily it came, how easily it, he denied that he knew Jesus. perhaps we are guilty of the same we thank you for the place of repentance we thank you for your grace and your call to repentance may we remember this as we remember his death we pray this in Jesus name Amen would you get your hymnals, please and turn to hymn number 116 We'll sing together, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. And as we're singing this, we'll ask Danny and, and Tom to pass out the Lord's Supper. You stand, please, and sing the doxology together.